to Mind Grind Liberty Show with me, Swithin Dobson, and him, Tim Patton. Today we discuss, are nuclear weapons a win for liberty and decentralization? Tim. Nuclear weapons are probably one of the five most influential technologies that have existed. It depends on how you define technology. Nuclear weapons are sort of a composite hybrid of many different technologies. Um, so, so, But I would say up there with railroads, maybe birth control, uh, certain types of compasses, it definitely is one of the most significant technologies that are built. Now, there's a big difference between what was used at uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki and what the Americans, French, British, and, and Chinese have tested or supported to test in various deserts and uh, islands in the Pacific. Uh, those monster bombs, the hydrogen bombs with the huge mega yields, those are the really big ones that make uh, Hiroshima look quite small. So whether the North Koreans and Israel ha- and other states have those is a good question. But as technology grows, a la I pencil, then arguably they will. Uh, Israel's ability to acquire nuclear weapons was central Ben Gurion. There's a for the book of the, the, the Israel and the bomb, French gave it to them. Arguably, and this is again more in the realm of of, consp- of conspiracy plus uh, political science here, which is a sort of two fields that don't like to get along always. But arguably, the only reason that the U.S. aids Israel is Israel always threatens to go full nuclear if tanks of Syria, Egypt, Jordan, Israel, and uh, Saudi Arabia, etc., its various neighbors start rolling into the countries. This is a point that um, was this why, one of the reasons I think Ben Gurion wanted to get them so much. This also, there's various conspiracy theories about even like um, assassinated JFK over this, supposedly. Um, that's just, again, that's more in the conspiracy theory realm. But I think it's worth bringing up uh, how willing they were. And what. And I think they had, their strategy was basically sound. The French who gave them them were the originators of this strategy. And the strategy is basically, we can't win an artillery or tank duel with with uh, the Soviet Union or Egypt in Israel's case, but we can win. We can just make um, your capital city and all the elites there and your elite networks basically liquid, liquidate them. And that's an interesting tragedy here because it puts skin in the game in, into uh, military actions and interventions. Now, now you can, might be able to do small to medium-sized military interventions um, and get away with it, but but there's a certain floor that cannot be passed where where it it, it more or less makes um you, you can blow up the whole name the whole, blow up the whole house if you don't get what you want now you can't you can't make this threat all the time but but on certain threats you can and arguably the russians um who at one point under the soviet union were much you know more dominant are are adopting the same kind of defense strategy where they're just going to blow up the whole europe and the united states or whatever if uh uh they um if, they acquire, if, if, if certain things, certain red lines, so to speak, are passed here. And Peter Zian reports that, you know, if, if supposedly if China threatens to invade with, with actual reports, Peter Zian was saying that Taiwan could acquire nukes in a week or Japan could acquire nukes in a week and basically force them to trade Shanghai or Beijing for um, the island of Taiwan. It's the kind of, it's the kind of payoff that you know, it, it, cha- it puts skin in the game. This is something very different than war before 1914. Now, with the invention of airplanes, it's a little bit different. But keep in mind, when the Operation Meeting House was for the large, or, or linebacker two, some of the largest bombing missions the United States has done, or for that matter, Britain, um, Operation Meeting House, I think the U.S. lost 15 or 16 B-52s. This is the the, the mass bombing of, of uh, uh, Hanoi in, uh, in a 
1972 under Nixon administration, um, or Operation Meeting House, which was uh, the firebombing of Tokyo, which actually killed more people. It took about 330 B, I think, a 300 B-29s. B-29s at the time were some of the most expensive planes. And again, they flew about 4,000 miles. So think of how much an airline ticket costs for like a 150-pound person. Now imagine now carrying a thousand pound bombs so it's a very expensive thing and planes require lots of hours so nukes could be again i'm not a technical military expert here but the nuke costs are more of a one-time costs here not a technical military expert but a lot of technical military experts are wrong about various things and uh so so if so that's that so personal costs i think that's the thing that really puts it unlike you know, the, the American president has a nuclear bunker, the Russian, almost every major political leader has a nuclear bunker here. And arguably the only lesson the second and third world learned via Libya um, was that the, if you give up nukes, you make intervention by Western states more likely. Um, uh, so a lot of uh, Israel's aggressive policy towards neighbors is preventing them, Iran, Iraq, and so forth. From getting nukes um, uh, now, the Palestine issue is different, but the Iran wreck is is the the, um, the uh, Egypt not having nukes is, is more of their uh, key here. Uh, um, uh, so I do think, and to go to the reductio absurdum that some critics of libertarianism or anarchism will make, is I do think in uh, Kapistan or for that matter, Chomskystan will need to have nuclear weapons to defend itself. And the reason is, if everyone else has nuclear weapons, they have to have them too. You can't put the genie back in the bottle here. And this is some of my critiques of some libertarians, which may or may not include Rothbard. Uh, it's difficult to find what Rothbard exactly thought of nuclear weapons here. But there is an ickiness that certain new left-type libertarians, and for that matter, classical liberal libertarians like Mises, um, well, not that Mises was a capital L libertarian, will apply to nuclear weapons, saying, that, oh, they should be under the control of some international agency. Um, or think, not that he directly said that, but those are the type of things that people say. And actually, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, I think, is one of the most bizarre treaties that are made. And I, it's, it's kind of amazing that, so to speak, left-wing people actually support it. Uh, the India has the India and Pakistan, India and Pakistan did not sign it, and they basically said it's a nuclear haves and haves not clubs that allows the haves to have military dominance over the world and the have nots to be vassals to them, and that's exactly how it works. I mean, be like be like the Catholic Church banned trebuchet in the name of oh you don't you can't use trebuchet or big siege weapons. It's for your own good. Um, <laughs> you like excuse me, this is just a military treaty to limit your to limit uh, our power. Um, so, so yeah, so I think Chomsky and the Capstan would have to have, I think it'd be a great way, I think, to defend yourself um, by just increasing the personal cost of an adversary on it. Now, it's a non-discriminating weapon. It destroys masses and number of people. Again, you could argue about how big is it. And that's one of my, that might be one of the disputes here. Um, but now here's my evidence to supply why I think it is and why I think Chompsy Scan or Hapistan or Rothbardistan, if a city state develops, would have to have, or let's say, a certain areas of the United States break away or certain areas of, of Europe, so to speak, secede, um, is why I think that it will be a win. So places like North Korea and India haven't really been attacked with a capital A since the, their, their nuclear weapons. If you look at places like Libya, they have been attacked. Again, 
the number of political communities, I'd argue, has increased. You could argue they're under the vassalship of the United States, the Soviet Union. Well, not the Soviet Union anymore. But the number of political, independent political communities has seemingly increased from the age of large empires beforehand uh, and the grand conscription mass armies uh, beforehand. So so that's 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 one of my pieces of evidence to test these kind of theories. It's very difficult to actually, quote unquote, test any sort of theory of this size here. But I think this theory explains the data better than the alternatives. And the alternatives for political science is the democratic peace theory. And the democratic peace theory, I'd say, is an abomination. And one of the reasons it's an abomination is it just doesn't match all the data. There's, I mean, what do you do about Finland or what do you do about Sweden? Um, Finland is like, it, it, it probably isn't Ben Burgess's or Noam Chomsky's favorite society, but if you if you actually looked at them, it's probably in their top 10. Um, and Finland more or less allied with the Wehrmacht to fight the Soviet Union. Actually, the Americans almost interviewed in, intervened on the side of Finland. So there's a classic example against uh, 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 dem- democratic peace theory. There's another example. The fact that Germany went everyone's favorite society in 1930, arguably under, under the um, um, the uh, duo and before they were more liberal and um, when they were under um, democracy, um, they were, might have been more warlike, so to speak. So the, and this Moldbug's spot on on this analysis here of Curtis Yarvan, I should call him, since he just goes by that publicly. Um, the idea that democracy causes peace. The the, the best th- thing to explain the long peace, I would say, is nuclear weapons since 1945. It's not about the, this Kantian idea of shared democratic values. And the shared democratic values makes places like People, not places, but people like Christopher Hitchens want to go invade Iraq or for that matter, Iran or Syria to go uh, have, you know, to go export democracy. Um, so, you know, it's again, it's go, it goes back to the idea that do it for your own good here. So, again, I'm a philosophical anarchist in the sense that I grew with most anarchist analysis of political power in the state. Um, states are criminal organizations. Um, now, this also could apply to mega mega corporations. But to the extent it does, it often is the state is the thing that backs the worst aspects of mega corporations in a, in a market, so to speak. So if you take Hoppe's analysis seriously of in democracy, the God that failed, the errors, this is chapter in the errors of classical liberalism, where he attacks Mises' theoretical support of one world government. And by default, everyone is a one world government advocate. Communists, um, communism, by the way, is supposed to be global. So is feminism. So is democracy. And again, I'm sorry, Catholics here. So is Catholicism here. So the idea is a global thing. So if you take the monopoly analysis seriously, um, you want a one world government. So what is the material basis for getting away from that? I would say the the, the material basis is nuclear weapons. Um, As the incoming Italian leader says, the destruction of a relatively prosperous Syria, Libya and Iraq are the real cause of the migration crisis. And a lot of the problems could be solved if more polities were dependent, independent. Libya, supposedly under Gaddafi, was quite, uh, uh, you know, had beach resorts uh, and so forth. And again, and for all the talk of democracy and liberal values, after Julia Arden's recent speech or some of the um, various things that um, did to Julian Assange, my respect for my own countries. Again, again, back to philosophical anarchism here. It's like, what, what actually is the difference here? Um, and again, I think that the second reason is, that, again, to, to, to say, as I've already stated, 
is the, the democratic piece that needs to be attacked. And if you can attack that with a better explanation, this this is important. And if there is if there is a breakaway society that happens in the future, I think the public opinion towards nuclear weapons should be more warm, so to speak. Now, again, this is this is disputed here because some people will say nuclear weapons are just a kind of a priori offensive weapon. Um, I do think on some level they'll violate the NAP here. So maybe maybe this goes back into the Nietzsche night. If you look into a bitch, become a monster if you're fighting monsters. So maybe maybe in Kapistan or Chomsky shouldn't acquire nuclear weapons. But I think they should. Ukraine could have kept its nuclear weapons. If Ukraine required its nuclear weapons, we probably wouldn't be in this situation here. Um, and by the way, one thing with respect to the United States, if the United States has a kind of collapse, um, if the United States has a kind of collapse, the United States will be put in the same position the Soviet Union now is. Um, so the, the remaining parts of the United States will have to use nuclear weapons to defend itself from its neighbors, from Europe, from China, and so forth. So U- U.S., at the end of the day, could eventually be in the same position that Israel is in respect to, in, to, to its neighbors here. So to me, uh, in terms of protecting sovereignty, I think it's a, I think it's basically a win. That that would be my argument. So nuclear weapons are a win for the cause of liberty. It gives more independent states and polities. If you have more independent states and polity, you have more choice instead of one choice. Uh, the worst thing that would happen is the one world government would have uh, like a nuclear monopoly over them. I, I would say it's like gun control over the most dangerous arms. Actually, the Second Amendment talks about arms, the right to bear arms. I would say the arms are more are a better broad word to say uh, in the sense that nuclear weapons are a form of arms. And I think I think I think within reason uh, and no within reason. I think uh, uh, if 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 state leaders can have them, uh, uh, there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. So I would say nuclear weapons are a win for the cause of liberty and decentralization. So within, what do you think? Do you think they're a priori offense? offensive weapon as sometimes Rothbard might have argued it's hard to get them exactly down on this um do you think they increase decentralization um do you think the growth of politically independent states like India or Pakistan again when we help it's more of a bilateral relationship with Pakistan when we uh drown them which is something that a lot of the sometimes it gets missed um uh but it does seem that nukes keep uh, intervening powers out in a way that, and actually, if Ukraine had them, for all the talk of like, you know, all the people supporting Ukraine back in the 90s, if Ukraine kept its nukes, Yugoslavia kept its nukes, uh, you know, there might have been a more stable Eastern Europe, it might have been more prosperous Eastern Europe, that would have been a buffer zone for Europe. A lot of problems might go away if you had more independent, prosperous communities. That's my line. So, what then? What do you make of this? Thanks for listening to the long uh, lecture here. I think that it's certainly the case that if you want to be independent uh, politically, you need to have the means to defend yourself. Yes, it's true that you might be able to get some pacifist communities if they're sufficiently uh, valuable to other more warlike nations, that you could in principle have a pacifist nation, possibly, which was independent. But in most cases, because the populations are unlikely to be pacifists, uh, and that they're probably going to be invaded, they're going to need to be able to defend themselves. And it is certainly true, as you've pointed out, that nukes are actually relatively cheap 
or the amount of damage that they do. I had a look at this a number of weeks ago. I looked at the costs of like um, the mother of all bombs. I think that was the one that Trump dropped on Syria. That's when uh, CNN liked him because he was bombing the brown people. Um, that if you try to calculate how much you would need for one of those for even a small nuke, it was uh, for the same sort of megatonnage. Uh, megatonnage, it, it was just so much cheaper to get a nuke. So they are certainly cheap, uh, and they certainly uh, the more the better the more even the weaponry between nations the that's going to put a cost on people invading. Then the question is, well, do other nations credibly think that the other countries will actually nuke them? As to so this is insofar as whether um, nuclear deterrence theory is correct. Do the, for instance, the, well, do the Russians believe that the Brit Britain will blow up Moscow if they attack London, for instance? Uh, if so, then it works. I'm, I, clearly the Americans would nuke people because they're the only ones who have done it. Um, although, interestingly, the nukes that they did drop are significantly smaller uh, van ones have been tested, which you alluded to before. Um, the Hiroshima bomb was 15 kilotons. Um, the biggest one, uh, well, this is one biggest one ever tested was the USSR bomb called the Tsar bomber, which was 50 megatons. Um, so the, the ones dropped by um, the Americans are actually not that large. Uh, clearly did a lot of damage. Um, so whether or not they have caused the pieces, certainly I think I, I find it difficult to think that they wouldn't have helped to some extent. Um, the question is how much, and that depends on whether they were more likely to be used or not. Um, when we're discussing um, nuclear weapons and with Rothbard as to whether they're offensive weapons or not, you really got to distinguish the size. I mean, the the massive USSR one is absolutely huge. I mean, it, it could completely obliterate New York City. But if you would take the view that, well, you know, you should only really attack military targets and, well, yes, you can attack uh, civ civilian targets indirectly, as in, well, you, your goal was the military, but there's sort of collateral damage, we could sort of minimise it. Um, I thought an interesting test case was to figure out or who has the world's biggest um, military base. And the world's biggest, biggest, biggest military base is unsurprisingly the American uh, military base in Fort Bragg in North Carolina. And having looked at uh, a map with some nukes on of how big they could go, I mean, it does seem reasonable. Was it the Pakistani one? I think I checked. Or was that too big? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the bombs, the largest ones the Pakistanis have, have, have had, which was like 45 kilotons, I mean, that would probably wipe out most of Fort Bragg. And that is an entirely military target. Now, I suppose you could make a fine grade distinction and say, well, yeah, not everybody who is a part of the, of, of the military thing there is really a, a, an actual soldier. Because um, as Keith Preston's pointed out, a lot of the military these days seems to be a make work, work or welfare program. Either way, I mean, even under classic sort of um, double effect or sort of uh, uh, sort of Christian moral teaching and, and war. I mean, nuking Fort Bragg and just destroying it in principle would be a legitimate target. 
Um, so I think when you're looking at nukes, you can't just say nukes are bad if you take the view that, you know, um, deliberate targeting of, of civilians is bad. Um, you can't just say on that base nukes are wrong because nukes can be in lots of different sizes. And it would now having a lot of small nukes, which could do a lot of damage and maybe quite small, may actually be a very useful um, piece of kit. Uh, it depends on the particular military situation. So the, all the hammering to say nuclear weapons are bad per se, I think is, is just false. You have to look at the um, um, you, you, you have to look at the size and they're all radically different in size. Um, as to what explains the peace theory after um, the Second World War, what explains the relative peace in Europe? There's one theory that you didn't really touch upon, which I think you could ex you could use to explain it which is not democratic peace theory, it's not nukes, it's basically American hegemony. Effectively, Western Europe becomes an outpost of the USA. And so because they're within the empire, well, then they're prevented from attacking each other uh, because they're all subservient effectively to um, the emperor. Now, is the American empire as clearly an empire in the same way the Roman empire was? Well, probably not. But whether it functionally is, is another question. Now, of course, this you could then say, ah, well, you know, what you need to do to create peace is to have empires. Um, it's a possible argument. Um, but it would at least explain why you might have more in sort of international coordination um, between sort of European powers who have historically invaded each other on a regular basis um, than uh, they had beforehand. So I kind of think in a way the multilateralism uh, and it, to some extent, it is born out of technological communication processes and to a large extent, American hegemony. That said, if Gaddafi had kept his nukes, would they have invaded? Maybe not. Would Gaddafi have used them on civilian targets in America? Maybe. Um, so I, I wouldn't want to discount that outright. So my, my position on, um, on, on nukes is somewhat ambivalent. Um, I don't like... I think it would be immoral to deliberately target civilian targets. Um, but even that being the case, I can still see a useful uh, pro, uh, place for nukes. And if this is something that a smaller country can get relatively cost effectively, uh, then that's going to be um, that's definitely going to be good for them. So that would be my sort of general overview of uh, nukes. Speaking of the long peace theory, one of the things it doesn't, one of the things you missed is the United States and the Soviet Union did not go to war, or the Western Europe and the, and the Soviet Union did not go to war. Um, and I think the reason that explains that is almost has a large degree with nuclear weapons. Again, this is I've discussed this with theorizing before on the ultra Calvinism episode with respect to Moldbug. Is the problem with theories is you sort of need theories, but you can sort of get overly bogged down on your theories here. Um, so. So I would say that one of the problems with with, with the, the American empire thing is that there's there's also competing areas here. There's also the Russia and China and India, which have a heck of a lot of number of people here. Um, they could do, you know, you know, as we see with the both world wars, technologically unadvanced, less technologically advanced societies using large conscription armies can do a lot of damage the more advanced societies here so so the, so in this sense for the united states again i think i think you know the united states itself is is more secure but but 
places like, um, you know, in Central Europe, so to speak, or parts of Asia, there is a sense, you know, this this showed up in the Korean War. MacArthur won, MacArthur, Douglas MacArthur in the Korean War, well, had the U.S. Army way north of the now parallel, which ended up being the peace treaty border. One of the things that they were wanting to do was they wanted to go full nuclear here. Um, but then the Soviet Union at that point um, um, said that certain lines got past China may or may not be an ally. Um, so they had us sort of making an agreement here. Now, again, you might not like North Korea here, but the fact that a North Korea and South Korea exist today is arguably due to indirectly to nuclear weapons here. Um, uh, if it was in the 19, late 1930s, um, it, things might have been different here. Um, so so it, it doesn't explain the, the second and third world um, as much, um, the American hegemony theory here. So that that would be my complaint here. And when you get wars, usually you get small war proxy wars or you get wars between non-nuclear powers here. And I think looking at places like Iran, Iraq, India, Pakistan is also salient here because they've been – They've had a number of conflicts between each other. And to the extent that they're proxy wars is a good question here. Um, but I think if you look at other societies here, and South Africa is another example. South Africa supposedly had nuclear weapons. So, you know, whatever you think of South Africa, for better or for worse, you argue that up until the fall of the Soviet Union, um, they just raised the cost of a kind of intervention, either by the Soviet Union or, for that matter, by Britain or the United States to such a level that, yeah, it's not really worth it. Um, um, for you know, so so in that sense, I think there's a lot of peripheral data that doesn't explain it here. And if you notice, no South American country or Latin American country has nuclear weapons. Um, I mean, if you think Israel does a lot of d damage to Iran or Iraq anytime they threaten to get the Egypt, uh, you know, look at the what would the United States do? And, and the Cuban war, again, Cuban missile crisis, again. So I think there's a lot of peripheral data about nuclear weapons that explain that they, they, um, they put skin in the game for elites here. And I think skin in the game is one of the central aspects of, like, what you need to do um, um, to, to uh, uh, protect sovereignty here. Because a lot of, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, and David Friedman talks about this a lot of, like the war in Iraq here is a kind of a turkey shoot for the Americans. It's 8,000 miles away. There's no real threat to the United States here, which, which which means that we can basically just hire mercenaries or make work soldiers to go over there. And it, it's, it doesn't really, it, there's some inflationary cost, there's some financial cost, but there's no direct threat here. And the lack of direct threat, I think, is the key thing. I think that is a thing that needs to be focused on why I think nuclear weapons are a virtue here. And they'll destroy the elites' networks or elites' friends in the capital cities and their, their sort of economic and financial way. Maybe not all of them, but if you can do enough of them, and this is sort of de Gaulle's idea, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, we'll just stay here. And that I, I would say that is peace, is more peaceful here. I this is the defense remains a problem for libertarians. A lot of the critics, libertarians will attack uh, libertarian societies unable to defend themselves against larger empires here. And I think this is the this is one of the ways which they could and, they, and already plausibly certain societies already do it. It's like, you know, again, you might not like North Korea. You might not like South Africa, but there's a certain extent that for that matter, you might not like Ukraine. But I, I, I think Ukraine had kept its nukes, but why didn't they keep their nukes? The um, non-proliferation treaty. And, you know, one of the things that 
I roll my eyes at sometimes. It's a lot of left libertarians and sort of social democrat Marxist types are very pro um, nuclear non-proliferation treaty. And as Peter Hitchens points out, you know, the denuclearization of Western Europe was an attempt to um, give. Uh, and see, I view Western Europe as more independent as you think it is. That that's one of my. That's what I'm you and Hoppe are very much think it's a vassal. I do think it's a vassal on some level, but I do think it's much more independent than you make it out to be. In particularly, France is probably more independent than um and I think I think again, the ability for them to have a kind of interest outside of the United States, I think only exists thanks to nuclear weapons here. And nuclear weapons defend you you from the United States, arguably. Um, and I think that is something that's also overlooked here. The, the kind of relationship that the United States and France, United States and Britain has um, uh, is, is might be more sovereign than it would be without nukes. Now, again, that might sound humiliating to Frenchies or British people. One of them's here. But I, I think nuclear weapons even motivate that today. Um, um, so that would be my comments here. I think Chomsky and Rothbard Sam would have nukes. I think the long peace theory, the best explanation for that, if it actually exists, is nuclear weapons. Now, do I think it's a fragile peace? Probably. I mean, interestingly, Kinsella, the IP guy, was on a podcast maybe eight, seven years ago. I sort of remember this because this is a, a comment that Kinsella um, would make. This is a kind of a surprising comment he would make. And he said that, you know, one of the f- reasons for the Fermi p- paradox might be that society requires a certain level of weapons and just destroys itself. So sort of the, critis- the critics of nuclear weapons and nuclear peace theory will say, well, it's dangerous. We're always like two minutes away from launching 100 nukes and we'll put a bunch of radiation in the atmosphere, destroy the food crops and so forth. Or to me, like, yeah, that could happen. And But I don't know how you put the genie back in the bottle. Um, so to speak, the genie's out of the bottle. So since the genie's out of the bottle, you may as well get the benefits. I think the best way to get the benefits are to spread them around. And if if Swithin, if, if some of them are a lot smaller, then actually, ironically enough, the bluff is actually bigger. Um, the bluff threat is actually bigger than the actual threat with a capital T. So those are my comments here. I don't really have any too many more comments. If you want to comment on that. Go ahead, Swithin, if you have any thoughts on Sorry, what, what do you mean by the bluff with their smaller? I didn't tell you follow your argument. Uh, the, the ability, the threat is bigger than the actual, the threat is actually bigger than the actual damage of the threat. So in that sense, if they're smaller or if they're bigger. If the nuclear weapons, like it's a lot of states probably don't have the very large nuclear weapon. Again, I'm not a technical military expert here. So it's, in some sense, this is all a uh, perspective here. And I'm just going off damage reports. That are basically freely available here, but the threat of them might be bigger than the actual. Uh, then, if 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 let's say Israel or Iran did launch a nuclear weapon against vice versa, they wouldn't be as big, or for that matter, Ukraine kept it. They wouldn't be as big as some of the uh, critics of nuclear weapons who fear they would be, like Caitlin Johnstone, sort of an anti-war left writer. Um, you know, she thinks it's like the number one threat in the world, which is she might be true. She, um, but uh, that that would be my point. The, it's 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 more bluster than its actual threat. Other bombs do a lot of damage. Um, c- cities might be impervious to that, and so forth. That'd be my that'd be my last. That'd be like okay. that, that. That would be one of the arguments against the the acquisition of nuclear weapons with respect to okay. peace. 
Okay. Um, with respect, so just to contextualize with Europe, um, with the peace, I, I think it's easy to decontextualize. I mean, there's very much movements after the First World War to try and stop Europe from fighting again. Now, clearly, they did in World War Two, which redoubled efforts to sort of make Europe more peaceful. And I think you have to consider that as a historical contingency, uh, that there were very much efforts to try to increase um, diplomacy, even independence of the Americans. Now, I wouldn't say that the European Union, for instance, is necessarily just an out, outpost of the, of the American empire, but I think it's definitely uh, related. And it's certainly true a lot of Europeans think it's, an, it's a counterweight to the Americans. That's very true. Um, but um, I still think that you could argue they're relatively in their orbit. Now, that said, you, you could then say, well, well the, the big question is, well, what about East versus Western Europe? Well, um, you'd have to look at individual territorial um, disputes that become between East and West and um, whether those would like you to, be, to raise their head again. So I think the obvious one there would have been the German claims and obviously the Germans were subjugated after the Second World War so that was never going to happen. Uh, that's it, the nukes could well have prevented to some extent the um, um, the, the conflict between um, the Soviet Union and the West. Remember of course though the Soviet Union probably didn't have very much money to be able to fight anyway. I mean that was that's the uh, Hoppian claim as to why the Soviet Union was not particularly expansionist. It couldn't afford to be whereas the Americans could. Um, so that's something else to consider there. If you take out into Asia, uh, Pakistan and India did actually have a small conflict after the time when it was all parties knew that both parties have nuclear weapons. There was a small conflict in 1999 uh, and um, they did both have nuclear weapons and they had nuclear tests in 1998, both countries. Um, again, I think. Uh, Quick to Europe, I think the fact that it went from it stayed small might. I guess oh well, yeah, I mean, possibly. I mean, events, yeah, I mean, of course, you, of course you could, I mean, you, you you could talk about the magnitude of the events, but I'm saying it's not that it didn't happen. Um, and then, I mean, clearly, with China, was very much concerned on maintaining the internal borders of China to begin with, um, because you know um, Mao only sort of consult. There's a, a massive degree of political border change after the Second World War around that time. So uh, the fact that the, 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 the nations there would want to predominantly consolidate their positions um, is another question. Now, that said, if it would have been the case that the Vietnamese would have been able to have su sufficient firepower to do serious damage to things in America, would the Americans have actually attacked uh, Vietnam? Not necessarily. Uh, they would have been less likely, that's true. Um, as I say, I, I do think they can make a difference. I mean, even if it was a, if it was just a case of killing a military base, imagine that Fort Bragg was involved um, directly in a war effort or indirectly insofar as it's a military base, and someone just nuked it, and, but just enough to destroy Fort Bragg. I mean, that's, even if that's possible, that's, that's going to put that's going to dissuade uh, the Americans from engaging in some um, overseas adventure. And that's even without talking about serious, like fifty. Um, megawatt um i think that's right no, a megaton so megawatts not not music um uh, megaton a bomb over destroying the entirety of new york city um so i i do think they could make a difference but i think there's a lot of historical contingencies contingencies uh there um and 
Also, the number of nations that we know have nuclear weapons are relatively small. So the sample size isn't huge um, in comparison with the number of nations on Earth. So I said it, it could make a difference. I'm not saying it couldn't. I just think there's other historical uh, sort of economic uh, aspects. I mean, for, just 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 for one thing. I mean, with respect to the American Empire, I think a lot of those you might refer to in like the American elites and elites in Europe have, have tended to find that in most cases, all-out war is not necessarily the best idea. You want to sort of have sort of indirect economic uh, influence. And control so that you can sort of just expropriate the population or knock out competition so you can make monopoly profits and that kind of stuff. That's that's the way to in, well at least to increase um, your sort of financial wealth and indirectly you can engage in the political stuff as well. Um, so I, I think to some extent there's been a fine tuning of tactics that works. So in in in, in the way in the way that um, Western powers have realised that you know, going for all out sort of command and command centrally planned economies don't really work that well. Uh, but they're sort of trying to get to a fine tuned um, hybrid model of sort of like a state control capitalism, which sort of is, is more efficient. It functions better and you can effectively exploit the population more efficiently. Um, so I, 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 so when even when you have large countries and empires, uh, you have to weigh up whether what's worse having external threats or internal oppression um is something that but nevertheless i do think increased weaponry for uh and power for small nations is clearly going to be a good thing and you can't and you you're right you you, you can't uninvent nukes and um you know if people have them you're going to be less likely to attack them and annoy them that that's certainly true um obviously a problem you usually get the crazy guy gets it but the crazy guy could get anything i mean the crazy guy could justify stopping anything um and also how enough would you even do it um that's probably more of a reason to have a society in which crazy people can actually be sort of like looked after or identified rather than one where you have high levels of social atomization in which the crazy guys are more likely to be crazy um so i think that's more of a general um sociological issue speaking of speaking of crazy people um for all the talk that kim jong-un is considered crazy i would say our own um elites are quite crazy uh you know i just just read max blumenthal or scott horton respect to this here and as far as being russia or soviet Union being poor i think that makes the argument of nuclear weapons even more salient the fact that the only reason they were able to maintain their territory is maybe it's because of nuclear weapons here so 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 you know, sometimes arguments actually, actually arguments against it. Um. Uh. So, and as and, and again, back to the crazy people. The 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 uh, and this somewhat state policy here. Nixon had the idea of madman theory. He wanted to be somewhat uh bellicose. You know, maybe he would use nukes supposedly. He sort of thought, talked about it in his the recordings of which were are released uh, um in his office during the Vietnam conflict here. So I do think they've played a role. I, I ironically think they've really played a role in, um, I mean, the first one of the one was called Peacemaker, I think, or one of them was called. Um, and uh, I think that was, that was the B-36 is called the Peacemaker. Uh, I do think, I, unironically, they have been peacemakers. Whether that's disputed or not is a good question. But in, in terms of, like, what's this related to liberty, I think more political communities get more competition, and more competition 
you know, makes the explo- exploitation less uh, salient here. Orwell has an essay called The Atom Bomb and Yield. And one of the things that Orwell said is that, that it could make uh, it could make governments super uh, it could make government officials could be with the with government officials could become a class in themselves. International government officials could become a class in themselves are so secure because of nuclear weapons that they can't um, that the idea of rebelling against them would be impossible here. I would say the only way to counteract this is to, to have the people rebelling also acquire nukes here. Again, if you want to say it's a long shot, go ahead. I mean, again, in this in this sense, you just go full blackpilled and just sort of um, Oral himself is moderately blackpilled anyway. So so crazy people might get things. And you know, Fermi paradox. You know, why isn't aren't there advanced civilizations close to home? Maybe maybe intelligence will just destroy itself. So can't put them back in the bottles. I think Hopistan. I think you know, I think that would be one of the first things if breakaway region ever does happen. Again, I'm mostly a philosophical anarchist here. Uh, I think you know its leadership, or for that matter, a breakaway left wing area. I think if its leadership wants to be serious, it either has to find someone to get them, or find an ally, or something like that, um, to get nuclear weapons, um, because they are the trebuchets of the day. They're more than trebuchets; of the day. they're the real, uh, you know, the the key weapon, uh, uh, and so far. So that's my final comment here. I think it's a win for for decentralization, which is a win for liberty. So as I say, I, 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 I'm broadly, uh, despite what it might have sounded like, I am broadly in favour of them. Um, I, I, as I say, I, I would just like ones which were relatively small and could be more, more precise in their usage. Uh, and there was not dependence on killing civilians. And I still think if you had those, that would be a pretty good um, defence mechanism. Um, with respect to crazies, I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me that King Jong-un is very sane, especially in comparison to Joe Biden. I mean, they're just not even close. Rocket Man is 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 all there. And um, I think as well, when it comes to states, it's rare you get a genuinely crazy leader. I mean, it's just very difficult to get. I mean, you, you can get them maybe if you had uh, like pure monarchies and stuff and you just get sort of like the crazy child. But anything apart, even in that case, they'd probably be restrained in most cases by the bureaucracy. Um, I, I, I find it very difficult to think that someone genuinely crazy can get to the top. Note at this point, Hitler wasn't crazy. He may have been evil. He may have made bad decisions. He wasn't crazy. Um uh, I'd now just like to thank everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and family and subscribe to us on Podbean and on YouTube. The more subscribers we get, the higher we get in the search rankings and the more people can access this material. And if you'd like to contact the show for any reason at all, please contact us at mindcryinglibertyshow at gmail.com. That's mindcryinglibertyshow at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.